0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you brought them today, to the book of Jonah. We've been studying this majestic little book for the past couple of weeks and we've made it to chapter 2. Just before we get there, while you're finding that in your devices or your, uh, your Bibles, I just wanted to thank you for those of you that participated in the winter care kits. I want to thank you for that. I saw the pile just growing and growing and growing uh, as, as so many of you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people that are experiencing housing crisis, um, we want to bless at least the 75 families in our school district that are, are displaced and are, are dealing with housing crises. Um, but also we want to trickle that out beyond that also. So all of your gifts will be given directly to families that can benefit from it. So thank you so much for it. And just a reminder of the Bible study that begins tomorrow uh, called God's Username. Uh, It will be looking at the name of God, the names of God as he's revealed himself in so many different ways through the various names he's given himself. Uh, So it would be great to experience just our greater exaltation of who God is because we know him better through the way he's revealed himself to us. So that's tomorrow night, 6.30, right here. Jonah chapter 2. Well, question for you. No matter what age you are, do you love to be corrected? No. No. Let me speak to the married couple. Do you love it when your spouse corrects you? No. Yeah. Do you like it when you're corrected and then given consequences? Yeah, no. no. Now you usually we think of, yeah, that's that's for the kids. Right? That's what kids need. They they need correction. And they typically need, because of that correction, they need consequences so you don't do it again. Right? No, don't throw your food while you're at the table. I'm sorry, you've lost the privilege of feeding yourself. I'll have to feed you now. Right? Uh, My parents tell me, I don't remember this, but they tell me that I was a kid that wouldn't sit still at the table. um, And I was always getting up, and they kept telling me to sit down, sit down. So finally, they gave me the consequence of removing my chair. So I no longer had a chair when I went to the to the dinner table. I don't remember that. I don't know if it worked other than now. I do I do pretty well, don't I? <laughs> I? I see. For a long time, uh huh. The slowest one to eat because I didn't used to have a chair. It took me so long, apparently. But what about us as we grow as we grow older, right? Teenagers do they love to be corrected? Not so much. I'm sorry, you missed curfew. That means you're grounded for two weeks. Two weeks! What do you mean two weeks? Or you, when you break those traffic laws and you fail to come to a complete stop and you get that citation, there was no one coming. Why would I have to stop completely and slow down the world? Do we like to be corrected? Corrected. Oh, not often. Do we like consequences? No, but here's here's a verse for you. Proverbs chapter 12. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he that who hates reproof is stupid. He said the S word. Right? Here's a better, here's here's a more positive spin on it. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. This is Psalm 94. And whom you teach out of your law to give him relief in the days of trouble. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Here's the crazy thing. As a child of the king, when you are disciplined, it's the blessing of God on your life. Because discipline will correct you so that you are having relief when days of trouble come. Well, that's a little bit of the story of Jonah that we get in chapter 2 today. We've, we've been looking at this book and saw how God called Jonah, who was a prophet of the Jewish people, to go from his land into one of the capital cities of the Assyrian Empire who were threatening to conquer Jonah's people. And God told Jonah, go there and warn them of my wrath And Jonah said, "Ah, I don't want to warn them. I'd love to see your wrath poured out on them. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship, went down into the ship, and sailed the opposite direction, ignoring God's instructions. But God loved him too much to let that happen. So he hurled this storm. That's what we looked at last week, how God hurled this storm into the sea so that even the experienced sailors began to realize this had to be more than just a storm There was something supernatural here. So they cried out to their gods. That didn't work. They asked Jonah to cry out to his God. Jonah said, "Ah, Well, my God is Jehovah, the God of land and sea. And they're like, Whoa, of course this is a bad storm then. If this is him who's behind this, if this is Jehovah. So they fell on their faces And they sought God's forgiveness and his cleansing and they committed themselves to him. And they stood up and said, yeah, but we can't do what we know God does not delight in the destruction of people. We're not going to destroy this man. But Jonah said, that's the only way. It's the only way to salvation is if you throw me overboard. Jonah resigned to destruction more than saying, you know what? You're right, Jonah, or uh, Jehovah, he called me, tell you what I'll do. I'll tell him I'm sorry, maybe it'll stop. And that's not what Jonah said. Instead, Jonah said, just throw me overboard. I'd rather die than admit I'm wrong. So they threw him overboard, and immediately the storm stopped. And the sailors made their vows to God and dedicated them to him. And Jonah resigned to die. That's where we are today. Chapter 1 closes with this description. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. God appointed a great fish. That little phrase, God appointed, is mentioned four times in the rest of this book, these last couple of chapters, where God appointed a fish, God appointed a plant, God would appoint a worm and he would appoint the sun to burn down. You'll see that as we continue this story. Where God is better than Aquaman, where God can send a fish to find this guy, big enough fish that would swallow him whole and take him down in the depths of the sea that he had just stilled. Now, some get to this part of the story and they, and they think, I am not sure this is really legit. You know, could this possibly be true? And you doubt that this story could actually happen. And that's okay. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the Bible, there's any place in the Bible that says if you don't believe Jonah was swallowed by a real fish, that he was really swallowed for really three days, then you can't be a child of the king. It doesn't say that. But for those that really doubt this actually was true, you know, Jesus spoke as of it as if it actually happened. So if you doubt this, here's what I would this is what I would ask you. Not do you believe that the fish swallowed Jonah? I would ask you a bigger question. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you honestly believe that this Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth who was pulverized in his death by the Roman soldiers who perfected a tortuous death, death, who ensured that he was really dead by taking a spear and thrusting it in his side up into his vital organs and saw physical evidence that his body began to break down. Do you truly believe that this body then was taken down from the cross, was put into a tomb, and sealed, that team sealed, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Do you honestly believe that it's possible that God the Father raised this lifeless body of Jesus of Nazareth back to life, not just A life, little, kind of, little broken from what it was, but he raised it to a glorious physical body of Jesus. Do you believe that actually happened? Then a fish swallowing a man, and him surviving for three days—that's kind of like chump change, isn't it? I mean, if Jesus can rise from the dead, and surely it's possible for a man to be spared from death by a fish swallowing him. Now, supernatural? Yeah. And maybe there's some explanation you might give on how that could possibly happen. I would say, we have a miraculous God that does the supernatural. I can see how this could happen because God, with him, nothing is impossible. And plus, that, that other question, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that is what's so key to your eternity. Because if you don't believe that Jesus truly died on the cross, then we're still in our sin. There's been no atonement. There's been no sacrifice paid once and for all for our salvation. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then, oh, woe is us, we're still in our sin, we have no hope of eternal life. Because a good man died, but what good is that for us unless this was the Son of God that rose from the dead that lives today to be our Savior? So the more important question that I'd ask, and we sang about it, but I'd ask you, do you believe that Jesus rose? Because that's the question upon which your eternity rests. But why why did God send a great fish to Jonah to swallow him? Why did God not just allow Jonah, who probably deserved what he was asking for? Why did God demonstrate to him what some have called severe mercy? I mean it was mercy that a fish came and rescued him. But it doesn't say the fish came and Jonah got on his back. It's like, okay, let's go. And that's not what happened. No, instead, the fish came and swallowed him. That's why some call this severe mercy. Mercy, he was spared, but severe, it was intense. Why did God do that? And I guess a better question for us as we think of its application to us, why does God demonstrate severe mercy to us? Because the Word of God says, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Or at another place, he says the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. Why does God do this? Well, number one, Three things I'd love you to see. God employs severe mercy to pursue us. God employs severe mercy to pursue us. This is what what God has been doing from the very beginning. Jonah tries to flee from the presence of God, which he can't, but he tried. tried to run from the presence of God, and God went after him. Isn't that what God did in the garden? I mean, actually, our very existence. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existed for all time in perfect harmony together. They had no needs. God wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He needed an art project. There's nothing like that. He was fully satisfied in and of himself. But he said, let's make man in our image. And so in the image of God, he created mankind. God initiated that. And God put him in the garden and said, all of this is yours. Everything you need, I'll provide for you, except that tree is not for you. It's not my provision. But that's exactly where the man and the woman went. They went to the tree because they believed that God was holding out on them, that there was something good outside of God. And the day they ate of it, they began to die. They were ashamed of their sin, and they hid from the presence of God, and he came down to the garden, and then the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that God began to walk in the garden, the cool of the day, and he called out, man, woman, where are you? It's not that God didn't know, but he was revealing to them and to us that he is a pursuing God. That he doesn't love us because we've deserved it. He doesn't love us because we're so good. He loves us because he has chosen us. And he's created us in his image. And he pursues us despite our rebellion. Jesus assured us of the same thing. When he, when he reveals why he came to earth. He says in, in Luke chapter 19, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't come because we were chasing after him. Jesus came to seek us. He said in John chapter 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. And, And John writes in his first letter, 1 John 4, he says our love for him is only because he first loved us. So God always takes the initiative because He knows we desperately need Him. There is nothing in this world that would satisfy our soul other than a personal relationship with Him. And He wants us satisfied, so He pursues us. This is is what God does. And and it doesn't just end once you accept His claims of being Lord and risen and, and the Creator. As you become His child, He says, now, as my child... There's nothing you can do that can separate you from my love. You can run, I'll run after you. You can hide, I'll find you. You can deny my existence, I'll reveal myself to you. Because nothing can separate you from my love. And as Peter wrote, sometimes trials will be necessary because they'll be like a fire that purifies our faith so that it may result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter learned that sometimes God demonstrates severe mercy that's like a fire that burns to purify us and to cast aside all that doesn't look like Jesus because the more we look like Jesus, the more we will fulfill Our destiny. So, severe mercy because he pursues us. Secondly, he he demonstrates severe mercy to awaken us. In in verse 1, Jonah Jonah chapter 2 verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And then some beautiful words. Now, let me just pause to say that as we read some of these verses, don't think... And picture in your mind as Jonah, as Jonah is in this big chasm of the belly of the fish, and he finds a writing tablet and a pen, and he begins to pen this beautiful poetry that describes his existence. Don't picture that at all. No, most most believe this is Jonah's reflection on this afterwards, after he looks back over this incredible experience of his life, and here's what he says. He says, I called out to God out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, or the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again, again look upon your holy temple. And the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me, and when my life—yet uh, you brought me up, my you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So, if you've read and spent much time in the book of Psalms, maybe there's several phrases that sounded familiar to you. This, this little prayer of, of Jonah's is filled with references from the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the Hebrew people. He says, I cried out to the Lord, Psalm 120. Out of, the, out of Sheol, or out of the grave, I cried, you heard my voice, Psalm 118. All your waves and your billows passed over me, Psalm 42. All of these expressions were Jonah's Grabbing words from scripture that maybe he had memorized as a child, and he sees how they fit so clearly in his life because he saw himself at the bottom. And at the bottom, God woke him up. It took three days. I don't think this was a poem three days in the making no I think I think he rebelled against God and fought against him until he finally came to his senses. Meanwhile, God miraculously sustained his oxygen flowing through his system, amazingly kept him alive and kept the stomach acids from digesting him as God miraculously preserved him from what he should have experienced because God had a plan. At the bottom, he finally wakes up. Some of you have had an experience where it's been hard to wake up. I mean, even literally. that You've gone through a season of life where you you found you have to set your alarm on your watch and on your phone, you have to ask your wife, would you set your alarm too because I'm just not, not waking up. Some of you, I won't name names. Some of you have had to call relatives and say, I really have to leave by this time. Would you just call and check on me? And if I don't answer, would you come to my house to get me going? Because I can't miss this. For some reason, there's just seasons in our life that we just have a hard time waking up. And isn't that true in our spiritual life? Sometimes it takes not just one alarm, or two alarms, or three alarms, But sometimes it's severe mercy that has to come to wake us up. Parents, Tyler and Alina and Danny and Liz, in your parenting, there will be a need for endurance for you. Wouldn't it be great, moms and dads, if it just took one word and they would change? Wouldn't it be great? Don't touch that. All good. Very good. And you go on with life. That's not how it's going to be. Don't touch it. I said, touched it. And you have to correct. And there, after that form of correction, finally they, nope, they go right back and they touch it. But after they're like five or six, they pretty much trust your work. No. It's not how it happens. It can, you go into those teenage years and your parenting will have to continue to be self-disciplined and realizing, no, I can't just be their friend. They have friends. They need, need me to be their parent, so I have to continue to be their authority, continue to be in charge, continue to correct, because as humans, we have a hard time waking up. Now, aren't you thankful you have a Heavenly Father and who loves you so much that doesn't throw in the towel after he's told you once, twice, three times? Aren't you thankful that we have a Heavenly Father that knows we've got, a, we've got an addiction that is really hard to break and we can so often say, Father, forgive me and cleanse me from this. And we walk away cleansed and forgiven. And before we know it, we've gone right back to it. The Father's not exhausted. You can't outrun His mercy. Your rebellion isn't bigger than God's love for you. Jonah demonstrates that the Father will pursue you. Because he loves you. And he'll be relentless in his effort to awaken you. And that's why severe mercy is sometimes part of our reality. Third, God employs severe mercy ultimately to save us. At the center of Jonah's Eventual realization is this reality of God's unrelenting, undiminishing, never giving up, persevering, faithful, forever covenantal love that he has for Jonah. And Jonah eventually says, I'll give in to you because salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what he says, verse seven. When my faith was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of salvation, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. So when Jonah finally came to his senses, he realizes... I was forfeiting the hope of steadfast love by clinging to my, it's called vain idols, my empty idols, those things that I felt was so right and so good and life-giving for me, when I clung to those things, I was missing out on his hope and love. What was Jonah's idols? What were Jonah's idols? Well, there's probably many that we could identify, but he certainly had the idol of nationalism. He thought that his nation was, was the favored by God and the destruction of other nations was just fine with God as long as his nation was preserved. That's sin. That's racism. God is the God of the nations. He doesn't desire that any peoples perish, but that all come to repentance. Maybe Jonah was clinging to the empty idol of self determination. God can't tell me what to do. I'll decide where I'm going to go. So I'll go down to Joppa to find a ship and go the direction I I want to go. So he clung to that idol that said, My way and my plans and my decisions are king. I am king. So God sent his relentless, severe mercy to help him see your idols have nothing to offer you. They're empty. What are our idols today? What things are we clinging to that results in our forfeiting the hope and love mercy that could be ours. If we, just, if we just surrender and let him be king, we'd find life that we're looking for and all this garbage, all this stuff that keeps taking you down, down, further down into the depths of despair. All those things that you claimed would give you life, but because you clung to them, you lost it. And maybe God... Brings you to this time, for whatever reason you're here, to say to you, I'm chasing you down. You can't hide from me. You go to the mountains, I'm there. You go to the depths of the sea, I'm there. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're planning. And none of that's going to satisfy. But salvation belongs to me. It will be so much better if you just turn to me now so you don't miss out on the hope and the love that I have for you now. For some, it's literally that eternal salvation that he wants to give to you. That you're still going in that direction, driven by yourself, keeping him at his distance, And he's calling you in this moment to say, just give in to me. I know what you've done. I know where you've been. And and I can take care of that. Just come to me. Acknowledge me as Lord. And I will cleanse you. Make you my child. I urge you to do that today. And then there are some that we've claimed the name of Jesus, but we've still stubbornly refused to let him be king. Or maybe king in this area, but not king in this. So you're getting hope and his grace and the the blessings that come in this area, and you're forfeiting his love and his hope and his joy that could be yours in this. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're saying, yeah, but I've tried that. I've, I've tried saying I'm sorry for that, and I keep wandering back. Well, no, his mercy, it continues. And he's here again to say, then let's try one more time. In fact, instead of you trying, how about you let me do it? Just surrender yourself to me. Just instead of saying, God, fix this problem, because and even in that situation, you're still being in control. How about you say, God, I'm yours. Let everything that is mine be used for you, and you fix what you say needs fixed. So maybe today is that day where God's Spirit is speaking to you to say, this area, I see it. I love you regardless. I want you to give that to me. Maybe you've had some wonderful parents. Maybe you've had some despicable parents. I don't know. We live in a broken world. But here's the thing. God is a father that's never done wrong to his kids. He's never failed. He's never acted improperly. He's never been harmful. Oh, he's inflicted some pain. That's what good parents do. Because corrective pain can produce salvation from a greater pain. So God sometimes reaches down with mm, severe mercy to say, I love you too much to let you keep going. going i stop you now you come back to me. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the way that you pour out your, your blessing on us. And sometimes, Lord, it feels so good. Your blessings are so pleasant. Sometimes it's your discipline that's the blessing that we need. And so, Lord, I pray that you would pour that out on us, that we would trust you enough to do whatever is necessary to purify our faith. Lord, for those that have been running away from you, that have never acknowledged you as Lord and Savior, I pray that right now, today, in the quietness of this moment, we confess their need of you and invite you to be their Lord and their Savior. You'd apply the blood of your Son, the blood that was shed for the cleansing and atonement for all of us, Lord. I pray that it would be applied to them. For those of us who, as your children, have been hiding certain areas of our life from you, Lord, I pray that today we'd stop forfeiting the grace that could be ours. Instead, would surrender that to you and allow you to clean us. May your grace be poured out upon us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story of John Newton is a pretty powerful story that maybe can uh, speak to us today. John Newton lived as a slave trader in the 17-1800s. He had a reputation of being notoriously vile. In fact, he wrote in his memoirs that It was his ambition to be the most vile man and to drag others with him. But it was on a ship like Jonah where he was sailing in his trade where he encountered a storm like none other and he feared for his life. They all feared the crew and the ship would be lost. And he would write later that it was at that moment that his heart looked heavenward and he cried out to God in desperation that he would save him. It took a month from that time before his ship finally made it back to shore. But as he walked onto dry land for the first time after that storm, his heart was awakened to what God had done, that God had given him grace and had spared his life and gave him a chance to follow him, and he gave his life in that moment to him. And it was John Newton that would eventually write the words of that song that you have sung numerous times. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. To as many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, With have no less days to see His grace. His grace that just begun. Would you, would you receive the grace of God today? Allow that amazing grace to transform your life. Let's stand together. And I pray that you would talk to Jesus, talk to the Father, as we sing this song together.